And each Sunday is time allots if we have time, because this is actually a short uh, message. Uh, we, I try to jump back into the Proverbs. So we're actually going to jump into Proverbs 12. If you're not familiar where Proverbs is, and your Old and New Testament combined kind of split the Bible down the middle, it's right there. It's right after Psalms, Psalms and then Proverbs. So Proverbs 12, we're only going to go into three verses and then jump into our New Testament study. Twelve five. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. This is a heart, a mind issue, right? Uh, it's those who want to build versus those who want to destroy, and it doesn't mean that the righteous don't have bad thoughts, but the goal for the righteous is to replace those unedifying thoughts with having the mind of Christ. And Paul tells us that in Philippians, to have the mind of Christ. Verse 6, we'll see this progression. The words of the wicked are, lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. So here we have a progression from the thoughts to the actions. Jesus even said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Really, you can get to know a type of person by what constantly proceeds out of their mouth. Right? It's a reflection of the heart. So here, thoughts are culminating into actions. And then the last one, verse 7, it says, The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. This is the last stage in this progression. It's the aftermath. The wicked are overthrown, but the righteous stand forever. And it may be tempting ladies and gentlemen. We've seen this in the Bible. We've seen Asaph complain, Kate, excuse me, Asaph complain about this, that why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why do I look over and, and my neighbor is, is you know, fudging his taxes or, or cheating the people that he's working for and he, you know, he's got all the things that he could possibly want? And there's a temptation, unfortunately, to, to, to say, you know, it, it doesn't pay to be good. But here is the Bible is saying it does pay to be good because it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Only the righteous stand forever. Is it really worth having 10, 20, 30, 40 years of, of prosperity, doing it the wrong way and forsaking God, and then having to face him in judgment? That's not a pretty picture, right? And, you know, you may have a plan. You, you may have your whole life planned out. And then, you know, it happens. It's struck by lightning, get hit by a car, have a heart attack. You know, every day I get up in the morning, I'm like, you know, thankful, Lord, I have another day of life. What will you have me do today? Every day that we have breath in our lungs is a blessing. So only the righteous stand forever, and that's eternity, and that's a long time. So we're going to fast forward to 2 Corinthians 3, go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3. The last time we saw the beautiful subject of repentance and restoration, and today we're going to see what the difference is really between religion and relationship. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of, of commendation or recommendation from you? Now, let's look at the background here. The Apostle Paul, he founded the church of Corinth. He's an apostle. God has called him. He sent him to do this work. And what happens is he, this is what he would do. He would uh, establish these churches, and then he would go on other trips and establish different churches on the way. 
But what happened was there was a group of itinerant preachers, philosophers, false teachers, and this is how they would make their living. They would go from either hall to hall or church to church or social gathering, and they would bring with them these letters of commendation. Some of them were, were legit. Maybe they were great orators. You see a lot of great orators in the world, and they would speak somewhere, and, the, and everybody would love them. So the pastor would write, oh, this guy's great. I recommend them speaking at your church. So they would have these folder of these commendations, these letters, right? Uh, some were, were, were true, and some were actual frauds. And that's how they would make their money. They would go from place to place to place and say, look what I have. You should really have me speak at your church, you know, and this is my fee for speaking at your church. Of course, the Apostle Paul did it because of the Lord, and he didn't charge them. Now, the false teachers over time, these Johnny-come-latelys, these new people that would come in, would try to gain a foothold in the churches. And they would say, hey, Apostle Paul, that's your apostle? Hey, what are his credentials? Does he have letters like I have? Look at all the letters after my name. Look at all the degrees. Look at all my education. The Apostle Paul, he doesn't really look like much. So there was the assertion that Paul was unqualified. And some of the Corinthians were gullible enough to believe this and started factions within the church. So there's your background. Now, any leader, boss, is going to hear things from his subordinates and say, you know, everybody wants to take out the king of the hill, so to speak. But the cacophony grew to such a point where the Apostle Paul had no choice but to respond because it was getting louder and louder and it was becoming more entrenched and he had to deal with this. Now, Paul's response sets the stage for this discourse on the flesh versus the spirit. This, the flesh is the earthly realm, the temporal, the, the, the here and now, the skin, the, the, the desires that we have, right? The flesh versus the spirit. That's actually, we have, we're spirit too. That's the part of us that's eternal. Uh, the Spirit, this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the, the heavenly realm, you know, it's, it's completely different. It's, it, they're, they're opposites. The discourse also went between law and grace. The Bible has the law, and we're going to see the law. Don't do this. Don't do that. You better do this. You better do that. Okay, God's law versus grace. Grace came later. Grace, what is grace? Grace is when, as we're sinners, and we can't follow the law because we're not perfect, only God is, what happens is he sends his son, God sent his son, Jesus, into this world to die for our sins, a substitutionary death, to stand in our place and take the judgment for us so that when we believe in him, we have everlasting life. So we get grace. Grace is unmerited favor. So we do things wrong as sinners. Jesus comes, dies for our sins. We believe in him. And now all of a sudden we're showered with God's grace. How does that happen? I don't know, but I like it, you know? Religion versus relationship, we're going to see that here. Earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And those who want to please man versus those who want to please God. And we're going to see all that in this discourse. Verse 2, Paul says, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You are manifestly an epistle of Christ, the spirit of the living God. Excuse me, an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So Paul's response to this is letters. We need letters, me and Timothy and the guys who ministered and founded the church. We, we need letters. And the point is, the fact that there's a church in Corinth is a miracle in itself. And why? Again, part of the history, which I want to elucidate, uh, in Corinth, it was wealthy, 
All right, you have talked about the history and the isthmus of Corinth and the, the trade and the ships that would go back and forth. So Corinth was a very wealthy city, but Corinth also had a lot of vice. They had the uh, temple of Aphrodite, the temple of Apollo, and this was legalized prostitution. So there was a lot of temptations there to do wrong. There was, um, there was drunkenness, there was carousing, there was, uh, it was sin city. Any sin that you could imagine was in Corinth. So Paul is saying, listen, the fact that their people actually came out of Corinth or were in Corinth and got saved and gave up their former lifestyle and gave their heart to the Lord and started living good Christian clean lives, there's your epistle. You know, the, the actions speak for themselves, right? And that's the proof. Changed lives and salvation in Corinth. Now, let's fast forward to today, even today. No matter what city you're in, we live in a wealthy country. Uh, a lot of the influence of, of our wealth and, you know, and a lot of the sin, unfortunately, gets into the church. It affects church people, all right? But a lot of good church people reject that and try to live in the spirit and not in the flesh. But the point I'm trying to make is that even today, even here, many of you have brought friends, relatives, neighbors into this very church and churches all around New Jersey and the United States because they see something different about you. You're not like the other people. I don't see a whole lot of hypocrisy in your life. You seem to actually have joy in God and have a relationship with him. Hey, I'd like to check that church out. And so that's what you see here, right? Changed lives and salvation. Verse 2, it says, you are an epistle read by all men. Folks, do you realize that you, sitting here, may be the only scripture that someone in your family reads? What do I mean by that? There may be also those, that, some that come with you to church, and some that refuse. I'm never stepping foot in a church. You know, I'm done with the church thing. You know, it was something I read before. Um, but the point is that you may be the only scripture in your family that and that, that and they ever see. They may never step foot in the church, but your life, your reflection of Christ, your reflection of living a good Christian life, your reflection of the joy in the Lord, maybe that's, you're an epistle that they're reading, right? So it's very important, and it's incumbent upon us as believers to really try to be in the Spirit and to try to set that example to others, right? But it's sad to say that even today, some pastors fall into this trap of worldly accolades, well, the pastor there, everybody's going to seminary, so I've got to start going to seminary. Well, all the pastors around me are doctorates, so I have to be a doctorate. You know, um, they all have the, the high-tech and you know, really cool things to draw people in the church, so I've got to do that. Worldly accolades. And listen, I'm not against bettering ourselves. I actually taught myself Greek. Um, I'm still intermediate. It's going to be a long time before I get to, you know, there's, there's not only so much time in the day. But I did it because so I could better elucidate the scriptures to you. All right, that's it. That's not my foundation. Our foundation has to be in Jesus Christ. Let me give you a proof text for that. Acts chapter 4. Remember, the disciples were confounding the religious leaders. They were scratching their heads, and they see that the apostles come out and do miracles and teach, and people are flocking around them and getting saved and having a joy of the Lord. And the religious leaders, it says in Acts chapter 4, they're like, we don't understand it. These men, these apostles, they're untrained and uneducated. They didn't go to the schools that we did. How were they able to do these things? And the Bible says, then they realized that they were with Jesus. See, there's the key. Education is good. Make, having us bettering ourselves is good. But the key is, do people see that we have been with Jesus? Are we reflecting the light of Jesus? And I'm going to go deeper into that. 
Religious men also don garb, you know, the fancy wear. And Jesus says this in Matthew 23. He, he characterized the religious leaders of their day. It was all about appearances, and, they, and that's done today too. Titles. But under all that fluff are sinful men like you and me who need Jesus also. Our attitudes must be that we must please God and not try to impress others with externals. And there's often a big difference between what the world sees as spiritual and what God knows as spiritual. Big difference. Jesus spent most of his time correcting the religious establishment at the time and welcoming and showing grace to those who were sinners and wanted to come back to the Lord. Now, Paul makes the further dichotomy between ink writings and the Spirit of God. Obviously, the Spirit of God is better than ink writings. He speaks about... um, the or he makes allusions to the tablets of stone versus the tablets of flesh. Now, if you've been a believer for some time, you know the famous passage in Ezekiel 11, 14 through 21, where God says, I will take that stony heart out of you and put in a heart of flesh. Of course, it was imagery, but it was a picture of what he was going to do with the children of Israel, what he was going to do with the new covenant and the the covenant of the Spirit, and we're going to read that. Fast forwarding to Corinth, God had already given many of the Corinthians that that heart of flesh and took out that heart of stone. Verse 4, he goes on. And we have such trust through through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So here's the accusation. Paul and his ministry team are failures. They're insufficient. They're unqualified. Paul's answer, yeah, of ourselves, sure. Paul has said before, in the flesh, in my flesh, no good thing dwells. However, we are successful only when we operate under the influence of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ. And that was done in Corinth. Now, let me agree with that, with what's being said. And so you're always on good ground when you agree with what the Scripture says. But people have asked me, how do you work a full-time job and be a senior pastor and raise a family and this and that? And if I actually started to think about it and dwell on it, I'd probably panic. But I don't. (laughs) But the truth is, when I'm in the Spirit, it's fun. It's awesome. I love teaching. I love putting messages together. Do you realize this is my fifth year as a senior pastor? Can you believe that? Time flies. But it's fun. It's joy. And, and you know, when, you, when you're trying to convince someone of something, you know, it goes a long, much longer way when you really believe what you're saying yourself. Whenever I talk to anyone about God, Christ, salvation, I, I can't wipe the smile off my face. You know, my face is going to freeze like that eventually. But it's just so exciting to talk about God's Word. This stuff never gets old to me. It is God's Word. And we really need to meditate on the treasure that we have before us. But let me say this. There are times in my life when I'm going, I'm doing, I'm this, I'm that, and I... Excuse me. And um, what happens is I, 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 something's missing, and I just can't put my finger on it. But it kind of reminds me of the cartoons where they're on the mountain and they're running, 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 and they're looking back and they run off the cliff and their feet are still moving. And it's only when they look down that they go, right? I look at that as there are times, folks, we all do this, that we kind of outrun God. 
And we know that we're not in the spirit because something is wrong. Like looking down and saying, oh, my feet are moving. Any second now, I'm going to fall. And the Lord's back there somewhere. And the Lord says, I didn't call you to do that. I called you to wait. I called you to listen to me. I called you to walk with me. Remember, I've got the wheel, not you. But we all do it, folks. And we know when we're not spirit-filled. And this is where our discussion's going to take us. And, and on, a, on a more dramatic level, uh, in, in uh, Judges, Samson, you know, all the kids see the stories of Samson, big, strong guy, and, but he had supernatural strength, and he would fight the Philistines, Israel's enemies, and there was one point in time where the Bible says, and the Spirit of God left him. He just was so much in wickedness that the Spirit left him. And I remember reading it and just seeing him jump out of bed again, the Philistines are upon you, and I'm sure he put up his dukes and probably took a few hits and said, hmm, that hurt. It didn't hurt the last time. Then he's on the ground, and then they're pummeling him, and then they take his eyes out. You know, so on a more dramatic level, we never want to leave the Spirit of God. We always want to be with, filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't want to quench Him. We don't want to grieve Him like the Bible says. And can you see that in your own life? Are there times that you try to force it, force the Christian thing, you know, put on the face, say praise the Lord when you walk into church. Oh, everything's just fine, you know, with that smile. Forcing it versus being in the Spirit. When we are being in the Spirit, all the stuff comes naturally. And I just call it, I just bring it down to two things, do versus be. You know, we can do the do, right? Or we can be in the Spirit. You see, if you are being in the Spirit, then it's easier to do. But if you just try to do and you're not in the Spirit, you'll never get into the Spirit. So rock, paper, scissors, be trumps do. Just remember that. That's what you get from somebody who didn't go to seminary for 10 years. <laughs> be is better than do. But in the world, we rely on our skills and our talents. But worldly success doesn't work in the spiritual realm. Are we self-confident? Because we're going to fall as believers if we are. Or are we Christ-confident? And Paul is saying, we're Christ-confident. As long as we're in the Spirit, as long as God has called us to do it, we're going to be successful. right? Because if you... Try to do things in your own strength. You're going to crash and burn. You're going to fall off the cliff. You're going to splat and say, oh boy, Lord, I really made a mess this time, didn't I? You're going to crash and burn. And God doesn't want to see that. God doesn't want that for ourselves. So let's look at that. Verse 6, he says, we are ministers of the new covenant uh, versus the letter. Now, what does the letter mean? In the Greek, the word is grandma, not grandma, but grandma. And in the English, we get the word grammar from. And that refers to the Old Covenant or the Old Testament law in this instance. So how does the law kill? Well, it's very simple. How does the law kill? Everybody have an Old Testament, an Old and New Testament? You pick up the Bible and you look at the law. Let's go to the Old Testament. Don't kill. I haven't killed anybody yet. That's good. Don't steal. Hmm. Don't talk bad about others. Hmm. Maybe a few more times. Don't lust after another person's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's goods. Don't try to keep up with the Joneses. Oh, this is getting tough. Now, let me make it worse. Let's go to the New Testament. Jesus says, if you lust in your heart but didn't do the physical act, or in your heart you want to kill your brother, but you didn't actually kill him, he goes, that's also a sin. Pfft. Guess what? The law kills. I look at this book, and it's a mirror, and I see that Joe don't look so good. His hair's messed up, 
His, his breath is bad, he's got to brush his teeth, whatever the case may be, in a spiritual sense, when we all look at the law, it kills us, it slays us, because it tells us that there is a perfection that God expects and demands and he deserves because he's a righteous and holy God, and we don't measure up to that. So the law kills. Well, how does the Spirit give life? Well, if you wouldn't mind turning to me, fast forward to Hebrews 8, 7. Hebrews 8, 7. Now, Paul, or excuse me, I, I think Paul wrote this, although it is anonymous. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, let's be more correct here, 8, 7, starts to speak, and then he jumps into an Old Testament scripture in Jeremiah, and I'll make that distinction for you. Paul says this, or the writer of Hebrews says this, my biases are coming out. For if that first covenant had been faultless, the old covenant, the Old Testament, the law, then no place would have been sought for a second grace, right? The ministry of the Spirit. Because finding fault with them, he says this, and here's where it jumps back into 600 BC, into the prophet Jeremiah speaking to the children of Israel in their sin, in their waywardness, and pointing to a better future covenant. He says this, Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, but they did not continue in my covenant and disregarded them, says the Lord. A covenant is an agreement. A covenant we could look at is really as a legal document between two people, and they sign it. But the children of Israel broke the first covenant, so he had to make a second covenant. He says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. That's amazing. That's amazing. In the Old Testament, you, there was a lot of you know, the parting of the Red Sea and, and you know, the killing of the Egyptian army and a lot of miracles and the manna that rained down from heaven and they were constantly being stimulated by these incredible acts of God. But God says there's going to be a new covenant that's coming where you don't have to say to your neighbor, look, I found it somewhere in the law. You shouldn't have killed that guy. It's going to be in our hearts. When I do something wrong, I don't really necessarily need the Bible to tell me. The Spirit of God inside of me says, Joe, that is wrong. You know you shouldn't do that. Even if you can't find the exact scripture, that is wrong, right? So you don't have to jump on everybody saying, know the law. It's going to be written in our hearts and in our minds. We're going to enjoy trying to keep God's commandments, not breaking them and sneaking around and trying to see how we can get away with it. So that's the Christian experience, the new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of grace. And he says this, Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant he has made, the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. So the new covenant is grounded in the finished work of the cross. Jesus died for our sins. We believe in him and we are saved. We walk with him. We have everlasting life. And it's the finished work of the cross. You see, you'll even find under some Christian, they're really not Christian teachings, that Jesus died on the cross and something was missing because, you know, we have to help Jesus along. His sacrifice didn't do it all. So we have to be good. We have to do good works. We have to give money. We have to do all these things because Jesus' work on the cross was not sufficient. We'll, we'll cover that. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3. 
But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steady at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. I'm going to stop there. So the ministry of death, this law that God gave us so we could look at ourselves and go, oh, I don't measure up. That was glorious. How? Because anything that proceeds from God is glorious. It shows us perfection, but it also shows us that we can't keep that perfection. Moses received the law straight from God, Mount Sinai, right? He came down from Mount Sinai, and his face reflected that glory. Now, I'm going to use two words here, reflected first. Later, I'm going to use radiate, and I'm going to show you the dichotomy there. And we can find all this in Exodus 34. But the problem was this. The old covenant would wear off, and by the Holy Spirit gives the Apostle Paul the second reason for the veil. Was that, and you see this, I went back to uh, Exodus 34, and I'm like, I never saw it like that. Wow, good job, Paul. But what happened was Moses reflected uh, God's glory, his face shone. And part of the reason why there was a veil was because of maybe freaked some people out. But the other thing was it said that Moses spoke to the people with his face shining and then put the veil on. You've got to read the words. And that's interesting because what he didn't want them to see was that the, the glory of the first covenant was fading away and they weren't ready for that. They couldn't handle that yet. Verse 8, the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious because it was exceeding. It had an eternal glory. The ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of grace was a fulfillment. Just like Jesus. Jesus came and said, I didn't come to destroy the law of Moses. I came to fulfill it. It doesn't mean now because I'm here and I died on the cross that you can go kill people because I died for your sins. You're missing the point if that's what you're looking at. He's saying, I came to fulfill the law. I'm the embodiment of the law, right? He, the, he ushering in the second covenant. Verse 9, the ministry of condemnation, he's, he calls it. Verse 7, the ministry of death. Verse 6, the letter kills. Do you get the picture? You see what he's saying here? Do you see why we can never get to heaven by obeying the, good, the, the Ten Commandments? Do you see why those people who say, well, I'm going to get to heaven, heaven because I'm a generally good person. I haven't killed anybody. Oh, so that's the dividing line. Have you stolen? Have you talked bad about people? Well, yeah, but killing people, that's the dividing line. We make our own standards, and it's foolish. God's standards are perfect. We cannot keep his law. Galatians 2.21 says that, if righteousness comes by the law, and let me add, or any external work, then Christ died in vain, and let me add, and wasted his time. If we could get to heaven by doing good deeds and good works, if you call yourself a Christian, then you can't believe that you can get to heaven by good works. The reason being is because what did Jesus have to come down for? To teach us nice stuff and raise people from the dead? Jesus said, I come into the world because it is my, my, my goal and my purpose to die. The teachings were great. The resurrections were awesome. The feeding all those people were great. But Jesus came into the world to die for our sins. Much bigger purpose than just doing miracles. The law only shows us how completely wretched we are as sinners and that the law can't save. But what the law does is it prepares us to be ready to receive the new covenant of grace and the Spirit. See, that's what John Baptist did. 
John the Baptist came and he had, you know, was eating locusts and honey and probably looked hair messed up and coming out from the desert and, you know, just like a really, he must have been a sight to see, you know, this wild man, this prophet. And he just had something to say for everyone, to the soldiers. Don't extract money from people that, you know, don't beat people up. He would told the religious leaders, you brood of, of vipers, who warned you to come here? I mean, he had something for everyone. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm here to take the mountains and bring them low. I'm here to take the valleys and fill them in. You've got to make those crooked paths straight to receive the Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus said, of all prophets, of all men born of women, John the Baptist is the greatest. Because he prepared the people to receive that grace. It prepared their heart for repentance. And verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. And in the next verse, he says, unlike Moses, we have great boldness of speech. Why? Because when we realize, listen, Moses had the Ten Commandments. Moses knew that when he gave the Ten Commandments, uh, it was going to slay the people, right? He knew he was going to give it out and... All it could do was really convict them, and that's it. See, but what do we have? It's almost like if I could act it out. You know, God gives us a treasure. It's this box, and it's like, wow, God, look at this. What is it? I'll open it up. Whoa, look at that. What does that do? That has the power to save souls. Really? And the best thing is that no matter how much you give out, there's still more in there. And it has the power to take a sinner who's headed for, for hell and judgment and pull him back and bring him into everlasting life. Wow, God, that is so cool. And it's almost as if, folks, we take it for granted. If God gave you something that was glowing and looked really neat and made noise, you'd be like, wow, look at this. But we have that in the gospel. And when we meditate on the power of the gospel, okay, you can't shut up. You have to be great. You know, your boldness is greater than Moses. I can't shut up. That's why I have notes, because I'll go on for hours, and half of you start leaving. I love God's word. This stuff is so important to me, and I really believe. I'm sold 100%. I drank the Kool-Aid, man. I mean, <laughs> this is the gospel. It has the power to save souls. Maybe that wasn't a good illusion, but... <laughs> anyway, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and we should too, that he gave his only begotten Son, and we should too. We should too. We have the, the authority, the power God's given us to, to give the message of, of the gospel so that people would be saved, that whosoever would believe, right, would not perish but have eternal life. 317, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through the world that they might be saved. You see? You've got to meditate on that. Verse 13, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were hardened, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. How true. When we become believers and we read God's word, and we see the truths in God's word, and we see the aligning of the nations overseas and say, how come I never saw that before? Nations that were never friends for thousands of years, now all of a sudden in these last days are lining up and, and, and looking to go against Israel. When we see the, the Israel becoming a nation again in 1948 after six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, 
you know, you, you're just, the veil is taken away. Wow, the Bible's been here my whole life and before me and before me for thousands of years, and nobody's seen this stuff? The whole world isn't turning to Christ? I don't get it, because the veil's taken away. Now the words make sense to us. Now we study the Bible and really get so excited that we have to tell other people. But one of the reasons Moses put a veil on, okay, again, a veil was just one of those things where he would, you know, put it and cover his face so the majority of his face was covered so they wouldn't see the, the glowing that was uh, reflecting off of his face. Again, they didn't, he didn't want them to see that the glory was fading. It wasn't something that they could handle at that time. Now, then he, he uses the veil imagery as something that blocks and hides. He switches gears from a literal veil to a, um, a spiritual sense, something that blocks or hides. Their minds were hardened. And even today, reading the Old Testament is veiled. Because what happens is religion now becomes more important than relationship. And you see that in most of the world. A relationship with God, that sounds like a lot of work. How about I go to church on Sunday, I write a check, you know, um, I try to be somewhat good for the rest of the week, and then I come back to church on Sunday. That's religion. That's not relationship. I desire to be with God. I desire to commune with God. I desire to be quiet at times, which is hard for me, and listen to God. But is that only in Judaism? No. God eradicated. In the Old Testament, you see, there was a priesthood, right? The priesthood started with the Old Testament. And the whole priesthood was designed to mediate between God and the people, right? When Jesus died, Matthew 27 says, the veil between the priesthood and the Holy of Holies where God resided, there was this thick veil, this thick curtain was torn from top to the bottom. God opened up. What he was saying was that men now have access to God through Jesus Christ. No more priesthood. But we still see the priesthood. Why? Why? God removed the Levitical system. He now wants a personal relationship with us. But many religions build that wall back up, that mediator wall, so that they can have a stake in your salvation. You see? And that's not the way the Bible says. Why try to re-Judaize? The answer is simple. It's too easy. You mean to tell me, and I've heard people ask this, and you've heard people ask you, well, so how do I get to heaven? Well, Jesus died for your sins, and if you believe on him and trust him as your Lord and Savior... That uh, sacrifice that he made for your sins, look, you, you've received of that. You just walk with him. You're good. You know, God seals you with the Holy Spirit. You really believe this, and, and you go into heaven. Well, that's too easy. So, like, what do I do? That's, that's it. It's done. It's the finished work on the cross. Now, there's got to be something I can do. There's got to be something that I can take credit for. It's not there, right? Earning our way to heaven via good works, giving money is egocentric. That puts me in the driver's seat. That puts me to have some control over my salvation. God already did the work, you see? All we have to do is trust him, right? He did the finished work on the cross. So why is the author, God, of relationships any less deserving of a relationship himself? Did you ever think about that? We love our children. You know, we want to spend time with our spouses. We like seeing our friends and laughing and having a good time, right? Why is God, the author of those types of relationships, which are imperfect because we're sinners, why is he any less deserving of the relationships that we have with other people? You see, that's what religion is. Religion is man's attempt to reach God on his terms. Relationship is God reaching down to man through his son, Jesus Christ. And I hope that's all really settling in there. Right? Again, we give God roteness, meaningless, repetition, 
Charles Stanley, Dr. Charles Stanley was saying, we tip God. We come Sunday and tip him. Hey, God, I got a few bucks here. Look at this and put it in the basket. Hey, I'm here, present. Hey, look, Lord, I'm actually going to read a few verses. Okay, that's good. Sunday's over. I'm good for the rest of the week. That's not a relationship. What if you did that to your children? Ignored them all week and just one day of the week spent some time with them. They'd be confused. What about a marriage? Probably end up in divorce. But why do we do it with God, folks? Do you see the, do you see the parallels? God is the author of relationships. He and we should be of the primary, the utmost relationship, and everything else really should be secondary, but that's not what we do. He deserves more. Religion is a ripoff to him, okay? Consider that. Now, you may say, but this is, this is you're a Calvary Chapel, right? Are you incorporated? Do you follow the rules of the land and the law? Yeah, but I will say this for all my other Calvary Chapel pastor friends to hear. My loyalty is not to Calvary Chapel. My loyalty is to Jesus Christ. Calvary Chapel starts doing wacky stuff. I'm, I'm out of here. We'll call ourselves something else. I don't care. You know, so, and that's, that's where it's at, folks. <laughs> Verse 14. It's on recording now. The veil. <laughs> I stand by that. And I know a lot of my friends are good guys. I know they would say the same thing. The veil, spiritually, was to cover the true meaning of the Old Testament and the law because the law was a tutor to the everlasting covenant. It was only lifted by the coming of Christ, you see? So through Christ, the Old Testament becomes much clearer. The veil is lifted. Again, Jesus died on the cross, and immediately what happened? That veil, where only God and the priests could meet, right? Uh, that veil was torn, showing access with all people individually to their God. Verse 17, last two verses. Now, this, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the bottom line is, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Religions have to follow rules. I was counseling a friend of mine who was part of a religion, and um, he, it was a family issue, it was a life or death decision, and he calls me up, and he says, I'm part of this religion, as you know, and there's a rule here that I feel I can't make this decision. I know there's a rule here somewhere in this religion and it's driving me nuts because I can't find it and I don't want to make the wrong decision. I told him what the Bible said and I gave him freedom. I said, you, you put it all on me. I said, this is what the Bible says. And he actually felt like a burden was lifted off of him that he could make this decision. You see? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, not bondage. Forced spirituality through rules and regulations give no liberty. Forced spirituality is no spirituality at all. Right? Religious people believe that following rules and staying in bondage attain God's favor and hopefully bring salvation. And again, my question is, or the question you may ask me is, but don't you follow rules here? Don't you try not to steal? Here's the difference. The difference is when we be, when we are in the spirit, we want to do what pleases God. Right? When you're in a relationship and something that you could do is very offensive, but you want to do it to that other person, you try not to do it because you love the other person. There's the difference. We don't follow rules to get to salvation. We are in the spirit. We're spirit-filled. God loves us. We have a relationship. And therefore, we don't want to offend God. We don't want to hurt his feelings. And it's easier for us to follow what God has said in his word 
when we have that relationship with him. It makes sense. We do it with joy. Verse 18. He says, through a relationship with our scary through a relationship with unveiled faces, we are being transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. Okay, number one, on earth, we become more like Christ, although we can never attain his perfection. Now, this is where those two words come into play, radiate versus reflect. We now radiate Christ, but we don't really reflect Christ. And I'm, I know I'm kind of splitting hairs here. You see, reflection is external. The moon reflects the sun's glory, but the moon doesn't really have any glory. It reflects it from the sun. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're a, fil- a spirit-filled person, you radiate Christ. It comes from your being. You can't stop. It doesn't fade away. As long as you are filled with the Spirit, you will continue to radiate Christ. There's a difference between an external and an internal process. There's a difference between the law, which is external, and the Spirit that works from internally. We exude the fragrance of Christ, and we've gone over that. And two, we grow in our spiritual walk. Even though our bodies are degrading, the inward person is being perfected day by day, although the outward man is perishing. We're going to cover that next Sunday. See, religion will never produce these results. It will never do it. And it comes down to this, and this is what I'm going to end it with. Verse 18 speaks about two things, goal and purpose. What is our goal and purpose in life? A goal is an achievement that we set for ourselves. A purpose is a reason that we are here which has greater ramifications than just us. It's part of the big picture. Now, as believers, the goal and purpose should triangulate with the Spirit of God. You see what I'm saying? And it all starts with a relationship with God, a reconciling between sinful man and a holy God. God loves all of his creatures. He loves all of us here today. And if you haven't made that decision... God wants that relationship with you. It's easy. You can start today, and you can start your walk with him. So if you are a believer, and you find yourself getting further away from him, like I talked about that kind of cliff thing, I would just ask you, you know, pray about recommitting your life to Jesus Christ today. And if you don't know the Lord, and you want to, or you're not even sure, we can show you how. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we...